Good evening, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Betsy. I'm a member here, and I will be reading our sermon scripture passage this evening. Um, so this evening, we will be in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 20 through 24 through 28. So I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to borrow one of the um, black Bibles from the back of the pew in front of you. And then if you want a Bible to take home, we have some blue Bibles in the lobby that you can keep as our gift to you. So once again, we'll be reading from Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through 28. So I invite you to stand with me as we read from Genesis. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps in the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, Betsy. Well, it's great to be back with you all. Um, a big thank you to everyone here, as, long, as well as our guest preachers who enabled my family to take a vacation over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we went to the Outer Banks. It was a blast. I saw Calvin try to crawl into the ocean. No, he can't swim yet. I saw Titus's eyes pulled out of his eyes as he tasted donut for the first time. We laughed a lot. We had a great time. So just yeah, thank you all so much for loving your pastor so well. It was refreshing for all of us. And it's really good to be back worshiping with you, um, especially as we are now entering a new series for the fall uh, called The Image of God Becoming Fully Human fully human. So we're looking at what does the Bible tell us about how do we know ourselves and how do we relate to each other? And what we're starting off with this evening is we're answering the question, why? Why do you exist? And this isn't for just having fun with a philosophical question. This is immensely practical because if you think about most of the disagreements you tend to have usually come down to an unconscious or unspoken disagreement over why. So, for example, uh, when Kelsey and I started dating, we loved going on hikes together. And I'll never forget our first hike. We get up to the summit. So I, you know, pull out my peanut butter, banana, honey bagel. I sit down. I exhale. The sun is setting. And Kelsey goes, all right, you ready to get back down? I'm like, we just got here. And the sun is setting. She goes, yeah, we're only halfway done. We have to get back to the bottom. And we started arguing about it. And what was going on there? Because my why for a hike was just to explore, to think, to fire gaze. Her why is to move from point A to point B as fast as possible. In fact, anytime Kelsey goes from point A to point B, it's to do it as fast as possible. My why is almost never to go to, from A to B as fast as possible. This continues to be, like, no kidding, one of the greatest tension points in our relationship, doing anything A to B. Okay, and so when we talk about, you know, the what and the how of being human, first we need to establish the why. Right? Even when you think about a lot of the emotional heat that surrounds most thorny topics, you know, in our cultural climate, like immigration or racism or abortion or sexuality, most of the reason why we have these disagreements is because there are fundamental disagreements between the why of why do human beings exist? What's their purpose? And on the day-to-day, like how you treat the people in your workplace, how you treat the people who live under your roof comes down to how do you view them as a human being and how does that change how you treat them in that moment, especially in moments of conflict? And so the answer to the why you exist is we're told in Genesis 1 and it's you image God. That is your purpose for living. And so we're just going to break that down. It'll be a very, I mean, it should be, hopefully be a simple sermon to follow. The three points are you, image, God. It's point one, you, point two, image, point three, 
God. That's why you exist. So let's let's unfold this to get, get to get our hands around what this means and why it's so profound. Okay. So point number one, you, you. You could say that a quirk or a feature of our culture is that while we've come so far in so many realms, right? So we can see into the far reaches of space. We have things like Teslas and avocado toast and FaceTime. Maybe Jose are currently doing premarital counseling for a couple and one of the parties is on another continent. We do, like that's amazing that we can do that, right? We've come so far in so many areas. Life expectancy has never been better. But I don't know that we've ever been more confused over the question of you, right? What is it that makes you, you? What's the purpose of you? Now, whether you know it or not, every culture will give you an answer to that question. Okay, what is the purpose of you? So drawing on a sociologist named Philip Reith, uh, he gives a, I mean, it's a very, it's very broad brush, obviously, but he gives some examples of what that looks like for how we understand our purpose of, you know, why am I me? And so a few examples he gives, just tracing history of at least Western civilizations, he says, so first you have the political self, uh, for example, in ancient Athens, where you find yourself, right, you get your sense of purpose to the degree that you engage in the polis, that you attend the assembly and so forth. And then centuries later, we see the religious self, right, to so think medieval times, right? And so you get your sense of purpose to the degree that you partake in religious activities. So you attend mass, you go on pilgrimages. You know, this is where you know, think Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, it stems from that. Then we move from that into the last couple centuries, which were largely based on the economic self, right? You get your sense of purpose, to the degree that you are producing things, to the degree that you are making money. And then now we've transitioned into, at least probably starting around the 70s, 80s, at least according to Reeve, what he calls the therapeutic self. And in the age of the therapeutic, your purpose for a living is to have inner peace and experience good feelings. And think about the many ways we see this play out. Right. So, for example, this idea that your purpose in life is inner peace, good feelings, it's largely behind the safe space movement right, that we see on a lot, of, a lot of college campuses where I shouldn't have to be confronted with a viewpoint that I disagree with because that's going to create emotional discomfort for me. Or think about the whole, the, the whole question of job satisfaction. The question, are you happy in your work? Does your job fulfill you? Like that wasn't even a question that political self, religious self, economic self were even asking. Because right? they're not so much thinking about their inner psychological state, they're thinking about more externally, okay, how am I contributing to the needs of the community? We see it a lot with religion and spirituality today. So often when you talk to people about you know, why they practice things the way they do with religion and spirit, whether they're a Christian or a different religion, you often hear something to the effect of, like, well, it gives me a sense of inner peace. You hear that, like, so my religion is good insofar as it makes me feel happy, right, or it makes me feel... Now, these categories, they're obviously reductionist, right, but... What's helpful is, I mean, there is some truth to them. I mean, it's never that simple, but there is some truth to them. But the point here that we want to see is that your culture will impose on you, often without asking your permission and without you knowing that it's happening, your reason for living. And you don't really think about it. It's just intuitive. I, I exist to, you know, fill in the blank. And so while there are merits to, you know, all of the self that we talked about, we want to draw our sense of you. Why are you you? Why do you exist and live from the scriptures? And what we're told is, I mean, on the very first page of the Bible, we're told our purpose. And this is the creation account. And so God has made galaxies and oceans and elephants and all kinds of fun things. And then the poetic meter breaks. And in verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then in verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Okay, so we want to draw our our why, we, our why we exist from our maker. Right? Hamlet wants to know why he's there. He should ask Shakespeare, his maker. In right? the same way, we want to look to our maker about why we're here. 
And so that's, that's the first, and this is the first thing we want to say, right? We, we are made to image God. You image God. It's the most profound identity you'll ever have. It's the most glorious identity you'll ever have. And so let's dive deeper now into what does that actually look like? So now point two, image. Okay, what does it mean that you image God? Now, to a great degree, we get this, right? It sounds so lofty and a little vague and confusing. We, we intuit this um, in a lot of ways. And so here, here's an example of this. Let's do a thought experiment on the, looking at the Reed household. Okay, so in, that's us. In the Reed household, we have four human beings in our home. However, and here I'm borrowing this, I'm adapting this illustration from another pastor, but we also have another living entity, and his name is Feely. We'll see him up there on the screen in a minute. Yes, he's up on the fridge. He's absurd, hilarious. He knocks stuff off the counter all the time. That's Feely. Took that picture the other day. So now imagine with me that the Reed household enters a like a, a severe financial crisis. Okay, we're not going to be able to put food on the table next week. And so in order to put food on the table and pay the bills, someone's got to go. Okay, some living thing in the household has to go. And so the question is, who's going to go? Now, if I answer this question through economic categories, it may be one of our children, right? I'm not, all my fun money is now no longer going to Feely's college savings account, right? Or it might be me. I eat the most food in the household. And if I answer this question, who's going to go through the lens of convenience? It's not going to be Feely, right? Feely rarely pushes my ability to love and to be patient, like to it, to it, to a degree that I just don't think it can go. But we all know, or at least I hope you know, if someone needs to go, Feely. You're out. Right? As cute as he is, I, I love this guy. Right? As cute as he is, as sad as it would be, people would have to go. And so we have to ask, why? Why? And it's because we all intuit right, that humanity is distinct from, higher than, the rest of the created order. Right? And this is more than just an evolutionary impulse to keep our own species alive. Right? There is something sacred about humanity that sets us apart. It's because we're made in the image of God. So now to get our hands around it a little bit more, okay, now let's dive deeper. What does it mean to image God? And first it means, number one, we reflect God. We reflect God. So think about how an image works. Um, I have a photo of my mother on, in our upstairs hallway. It's, it's one of my favorite pictures of my mom. And think about that image. So the image is not my mom, but it reflects my mom. And what I love about it is, is it captures her essence. So I, I see in her eyes that care and sorrow even. I've known for as long as I can remember. She's smiling in the picture, and underneath that smile is that there's a, a fountain of mirth and merriment about her underneath her. It just totally captures so many of the things that I love about my mother. And so when God tells you you're made in his image, i.e. reflect him, what this means is that you exist to reflect, to capture the essence of God. What are some examples of how this looks? Okay, we don't capture God's essence and how he looks. He doesn't have you know, arms and feet, right? God is spirit. Um, but think about the ways that we do image God. So your capacity for speech. When God speaks, he creates worlds. And we see this in the Genesis 1 creation account. He shapes reality. When he speaks, he heals. John 5, Jesus tells a paralytic, oh, man, I tell you, take up your mat and walk. He walks. So it is for you. Your speech actually has the ability to shape reality for people. Right? Your speech has the ability to heal or to wound. Or take your capacity for justice and mercy. Feeling it doesn't pray for Ukraine. Feeling it doesn't get brokenhearted or feel angry when you read about a girl, a 22-year-old girl in Iran 
right? You hit the bell for wearing her hijab incorrectly. Those impulses that you have, right, for justice and for mercy, that's the image of God being reflected in you because God cares about the vulnerable as well. For your capacity for relationality, you are a relational being because you are made in the image of God who is a relational being in his essence, right? He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is a community at the heart of his being. And so you are only going to know yourself to the degree you are in deep relationship with other people. And you will also bring joy into other people's lives by bringing them into relationship. Sfili doesn't invite people to share a dinner table with him and give them community and belonging and anxious and vulnerable. You can't. And that's you reflecting the essence of who God is. Okay, so first, being made in God's image means you reflect God. You actually capture and display his essence to other people. And number two, what else does it mean is you just reflect him, but you represent him. So this term, your image that you see a bunch in Genesis 1, this term image is used elsewhere in the Bible to talk about statues um, that rulers would put in distant lands to represent their sovereignty or the rule, or they would stamp their image onto a coin. And so what this would do is in an age before smartphones and media, right, if you have people in distant lands who they they're not near you, they don't see you, is if they look and they see the image of the ruler in that statue, they'll know the ruler is saying, this is the realm where my presence is powerful and my will is done. Right, so these images reflected the ruler's presence and authority. And now look at what he tells the man and woman to do. Verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birth of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So how does God want to represent his presence and his will to creation? Right? Instead of erecting a dead or a lifeless statue, he, he makes living statues, as it were, you. And he says, Be fruitful and multiply, right? to fill the earth with living images of him, and then have dominion over the fish of the sea i.e. exercise God's rule, do his will. This is, in a sense, this is the Old Testament version of how Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6 when he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning, when you represent God, what this means is, as his image bearer, you are to go into spaces and bring his presence with you and do his will. And as you exercise his will, you're actually making heaven intersect with earth for other people. And it's it's one of the most compelling visions for living that I've ever heard. So think about you don't go into your office, into church, into a meal, or into any space for yourself. You do it in order to bring the presence of God. So a question we should be asking ourselves is, after I leave this interaction, after I leave this space, have I left it more alive with the presence of God? Compared to if I wasn't there at all, I think I was reflecting them and representing them. And as an illustrate, as a recent illustration of a big example, just to try to make it a little bit more concrete for you guys, I was talking with my sister, and she lives in a major city, and she was sharing with me how one evening she is in her it's a street front row home, and she is there with her kids. She's had a long day, and she hears a loud bang outside of her window, and so she peers outside, and a woman was driving home and got distracted. I think she had a dog in her back seat or something. She got distracted, and she T-boned my sister's car, right? So the crash was my sister's car getting totaled. Sister's like. So she's stressed out of her mind, but she goes outside and, you know, I mean, this lady is just filled with so much shame, right, and guilt. And my sister goes out there and with such grace comforts this lady and she invites her inside. She says, come on inside, I'll give you some drink, I'll give you some food, we'll work this out. And they end up hanging out for a long time. And about halfway into the conversation, the lady looks at my sister and she goes, this is a weird question, but there's something about this space, there's something about you, like, what do you do? And she goes, 
well, I'm a Christian, and my husband's a pastor here, here in the city. We have a church here. And she goes, really? She goes, you know, I, don't, I have no idea what I believe about the whole God and spirituality thing, but I am in a place where I want to learn more. I want more of what you have. Can I come to church with you? And her and her husband, you know, both who weren't Christians, are now coming to her church, and they're involved in a community. And I, I think are now following Jesus. And this is the power of, this is what happens when we enter into spaces, right? Not thinking about how I have a long day with my inner life looking right now, but when we enter into spaces to bring the presence of Jesus to people, that's what God does. And so you reflect God in order that you may represent him to other people. That's what it means that you image God. So now number three, let's look at the significance of God. Okay, what does it mean that you image God? This could be a year's worth of sermons, but let's just look at two key critical things that means that you image God. And the first thing is this. It's not as simple as saying, okay, you need to image God, go out of here and do likewise. And the reason is because what sin does is sin isn't at its heart a list of do this, do that. But sin at its heart creates an attitude in us where rather than wanting to reflect and represent God, we want to reflect and represent ourselves. And rather than wanting to do God's will in every human exchange, we want to do, I want to do my will. Right? And so you can't image someone unless you know them and love them and are in close proximity to them. And so in one sense, yes, every human being is created in the image of God. And we'll get to that next week, like the massive implications this has for how we treat all image bearers, regardless of what faith they belong to. Okay, so every human being does image God, but in order to image God in his fullness, right, this is why we need Jesus. And you heard in the call to worship tonight from Colossians 1, starting verse 15, verse 15, that Jesus is the ultimate image of God. And then if you continue in verse 22, it says, Jesus has now reconciled you to God in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Meaning when Jesus, the fullest image of God comes, right? The one who holds all of heaven and earth, earth together, he doesn't just go to the cross and rise again just to give you eternal life in the future. He does it to bring you into proximity to God, to give you a new heart so that you love God and brings you into a whole new kind of life where now instead of wanting to just reflect and represent yourself and to do your will, you want to reflect and represent the Lord. And we're told in Romans chapter 8 that when God foreknows you and calls you to himself, he predestines you to conform you to the image of Jesus. So as you keep walking with Jesus day by day, it's like the mirror right, is being scrubbed clean. So with each progressive day, and it will culminate in eternity, you look, somehow you, you are still you while looking exactly like Jesus, the Son of God. It's that, that's the first thing it means by what does it mean we image God. We actually grow to look more and more like Jesus by being brought into relationship with him through his life, death, and resurrection. But number two, what does it mean? So once you're in relationship with God through Jesus, think of how this completely changes your sense of self. You do not image a trash heap. You do not image that person envy. You do not image that idealized version of yourself that you keep chasing. You image God. And a weakness of Christians I've found in my own life, or just the more I get to know guys, you know, among others is one of our weaknesses is right when we hear something in the Bible that confronts us, we're quick to deflect it to someone else, right? So we read a scripture, we hear a sermon on pride or created, we think, oh man, she really needs to hear this sermon right now. Like we're really good at deflecting God's voice when he's confronting us. We're not just good at deflecting God's voice when he confronts us, we're also great at deflecting God's voice when he affirms us. Right? When he affirms you. And so how we're going to end here is I want to embrace a little bit of the uncomfortability. I want you to try to put aside 
some of the cynicism that you may have toward God affirming you. Because yeah, there's a point where you can just, I, I know a lot of you guys, for a lot of you are thinking, oh man, it sounds a lot like something of, you know, positive, you know, pop psychology and faith sounds cheesy. This isn't, we're not, we're drawing this from the first page of the Bible, right? That you image God. And so what God wants you to hear tonight is that you have inexpressible worth because you image him. So I want you to do something with me. This may be the most awkward thing that's ever happened in here, which is saying quite a bit. Um, I want you to take out your phone. Just take out your phone. This is the first time I've ever brought mine up here. I know some of you use your phones to communicate to each other in service, so I know you have it. So take it out. I, I heard a pastor do this. I first thought that was super cheesy, but it, it really helped me, and I hope it helps you. So play your phone. Now click on your camera app. Right, I'm about to say a few words I never thought I would say, just in general, let alone from up here. I want us all to take a selfie. <laughs> right, to take a selfie. Who's <laughs> already on enough, is it? All right, you got it? Hold up. Let's get it together. Come on. What do you see? I think, oh my word, why did I take it from the worst vantage point possible? You know, underneath here, I should have done the, you know, <laughs> that thing. I'm thinking, I need to stop plucking my eyebrows, like half of my... Take a good look. What do you see? You see inexpressible words. Unspeakable. Unmatched. You are made to reflect and represent God. And we live in a world that is starving for a sense of self-worth. Okay, and you read all kinds of social media influencers saying things like, know your worth, know your value. And you know, the thing is, they're right. But the problem is they're not giving any basis for it. And people sense, if you were to ask why, Right, so we got in the public square where you're just here through a chance collision of atoms, right? You're not, you're basically a meat suit, right? Why am I valuable? But then we're told by our therapist, you have unspeakable dignity, right? And so there's this tension here, and we sense there's no basis for it. But we're told all along on the first page of the Bible that you image God. And I heard the other day uh, a pastor named Sam Albury, and he was talking about how before when Christians would do evangelism and the, say, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, he said, at that time we lived in a moralistic age, right, where most people believed they were good, and so the task of evangelism was to essentially just, you know, show people how they're sinners, and so therefore they would see their need for, for Jesus, and so we would start in Genesis 3, that's where the fall is, where he somebody says, today we need to begin in Genesis 1, because we don't live in a moralistic age where we need to convince people they're sinners, we live in an anxious age where we need to prove to people they're worth something. It's so true. You know, it's not just true for evangelism. It's true for people in church. It's true for you. And I want you to just consider how much of your life you think about yourself, as you think about yourself in relationship to God, is always just, oh my gosh, I'm falling short, or oh my gosh, I'm this, or oh my gosh, I'm not that. Look again at the image one more time. You may have never been happy with your personality. You wish you were more witty, or more reflective, or better with people. You may have never been happy with your abilities, right? Whether it be you wish you were better at sport, or better at your job, or smarter, or better with words. 
you may have never been happy with your body. Always wish some part of it was bigger or smaller or shaped differently in some kind of mind. You may be looking for a love that you're wondering if you're ever going to get. And what God wants you to hear tonight is that you have been expressing. It's what Jesus came to perfect in you. It's what his death and his resurrection promised for you. And so the reason for your life, the why that you exist, is you were made to reflect and represent God, and through Jesus, you do. C.S. Lewis, when talking about this, when he says, he's speaking of this unparalleled reason for living and birth that you have, he says, it feels impossible, a rate of glory our hearts can barely sustain. And then he adds, but so it is. So it is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I can't thank you enough for what you give us, which is that we actually get to image you. And I pray that you will help us in the coming weeks to believe that, um, to come into relationship with Jesus if we're not already, and to, as we grow in this knowledge, we will change how we treat ourselves as you treat us, and then how we move out and treat others who also reflect and very greatly that you. In the name of your Son, we all this possible, we pray. Amen.